hello and welcome back. You're listening to another incredible episode of Inside Soccer with your host, Bill Peterson. Inside Soccer brings you the soccer fan, expert analysis and opinion on the critical issues facing the game today. Bill will also bring you guests that have incredible stories and historical perspectives on the game. With soccer experience spanning 20 years, the Rolodex is open to bring you the voices and opinions you want. Sit back and wherever you are in the world, enjoy today's episode. I want to welcome everybody listening from wherever you may be today. We are very, very fortunate, very happy to have a really special guest on episode one. We put this pod together to bring to the fans of the game people who have been in the trenches, people who have helped build the sport here in this country, people who have been involved uh, in a lot of different aspects that have real expertise because they've been there. And we have a guest today who's who's been there over and over and over again for a long time in, in a lot of different roles. And without further ado, let me introduce Kevin Payne. Kevin is the CEO of U.S. Club Soccer today, and we'll walk through his background, but he has been involved in the game uh, literally, I don't want to, I don't want to date anyone here. We're all getting a little older, so it's been long enough and, uh, you've seen it all. And so that's what we want to share with some of the people today is, is just your experiences and also some of your insights. Uh, but let's kick it off, Kevin, first of all, welcome. And, uh, let's kick it off. Tell, tell, tell the people who are listening what you're doing now, what U.S. Club Soccer is doing, and sort of the role of U.S. Club Soccer as it fits into the structure of U.S. Soccer, if you don't mind. Sure. Well, Bill, it's great to talk to you, and I, I, I hope that you and your family are all doing well. Um, yeah, I thought I'd seen it all in soccer until the last uh, three months. Um, I don't think anybody's seen anything like this. Um, so we're all you know, I think we're all trying to find our way through this. And the, certainly the same thing is true for U.S. club soccer. Um, as you mentioned, I'm the CEO of the organization. Um, U.S. club soccer is what's called a national association member of U.S. soccer. Um, so we have the same membership status as uh, USYSA or ASO, for instance. Um different from the state associations, which have a, a specific category of membership in U.S. soccer, specific to them. Um, uh, U.S. club soccer was begun in 2001 um, by a group of uh, directors of coaching from uh, generally from very successful clubs, in particular, a group of clubs in California. And the organization was founded on kind of three really basic principles. One is that soccer decisions should be made by soccer people. Two is that uh, local decisions are best made locally. And three, the sport deserves professional management. So those things sound, you know, very self-evident, but um, they actually were kind of revolutionary when the sport uh, when the organization was begun in um, 2001 the the way soccer was run in those days was a little bit different and uh, in particular organizations were very uh, focused on the fact that they were primarily um, 
managed by volunteers. And while there's certainly something to be said for volunteerism and the sport still uh, derives a lot of benefit from that, but you also, you know, you kind of get what you pay for. And uh, so U.S. club soccer uh, was part of the, the reason that it was begun was because that group of, of individuals felt like the sport deserved more <clears throat> professional and committed full-time management. So right now, today, we have um, just under 500,000 players in all 50 states and uh, another 75,000 coaches and staff. Um, so we've become, you know, a large organization with a, a national influence and reach. And um, we are very focused uh, on, a, on our kind of the philosophy that we espouse right now and that almost all of our programming uh, <clears throat> reflects is our players first um, effort, which is really designed to try to provide resources and a, and a guiding philosophy to youth soccer clubs to get them to think first as they make all decisions first what's best for the players um and uh, you know that's it's based on five basic um kind of pillars we call them um club development coaching development player development parent engagement and education and player health and safety so particularly the the latter the latter point is being tested for all of us right now um and you know we've made all of our decisions as we always do with uh, our first priority is the health and safety of our our players our staff and our parents it's but, a uh, i'll jump in here for a second it's a it's a that's a monumental um sort of set of tasks and responsibilities. I mean, that's a bigger organization than most countries would have total participation. And, uh, you know, I know it's, it's, it's not easy to cover the geography in this country. Um, before, before you, before you, we touch on COVID before we touch on what us soccer's done with some of their reorganization, the elimination of, of the DA, uh, before all that hit us, what was, what was, what was your day like? What was re what was most important for your organization? Where were you guys trying to head before everything uh, was dropped in your lap here? Yeah, there's a couple of different areas that we really focus a lot of attention on. C certainly the competitive platforms and the competitive pathway for players is very important. Um, so the whole concept behind Players First is to try to get clubs to spend as much time thinking about their lowest level players as they do about their most accomplished players. Um, and that's something that we feel very strongly about. For, for the players that are kind of at the top of the competitive pyramid, um, there you know, has been a certain amount of confusion over the years, and they don't always know uh, what's the right pathway for them. So we've been trying to provide um, a little clearer pathway. Uh, on, the, on the girls' side, 
clearly ECNL, which is a, a member of U.S. club soccer, is the highest level of competition. Um, we believe that that provides the finest uh, girls development platform, you know, probably in the world. Um, and I, I def- when I say girls, I mean, you know, not outside of a professional environment. Mm-hmm. Um, on the boys' side, we have uh, two, two pathways at the top of our competitive pyramid. One is ECNL boys, and the other is our national premier leagues, or NPLs. Um, we have, uh, uh, between the two, we have approximately 330 clubs around the country that are competing. And then at the end of the year, um, the top clubs, based on league play throughout the year, from those two um, pathways come together in a single national championship uh, competition. So we're, we're trying to make it a little more coherent. Um, and, you know, not, not necessarily with 100% success, but we're at least focused on that. And then we have been very, very focused on our relationship with uh, La Liga, trying to improve the quality of coaching in this country through um, more education and encouraging kind of a broader thought process on behalf of our coaches. Um, And then we've also been providing, been working very hard to provide a lot of resources to our clubs to fulfill the mission of players first. Yeah. I'll tell you, you're you're doing, you're doing uh, the Lord's work here. I mean, I I've been fortunate to be a soccer parent almost full-time uh, probably the last 12 months. And, and you see a, a different side of the sport than you do obviously at the pro game or, uh, you know, at the, at the national team uh, level, et cetera. And uh, as I said in the beginning in my intro, I mean, there's not a lot of people that can, you know, make the changes and dig into the details while they maintain a vision I mean, you find, I find there's two different types of people most of the time. One, you got the person that digs into the details and they get lost and they forget what the heck they even started. And then two, you got people who are afraid of the details and they're, you know, they're quote visionaries. And, uh, you know, eventually that runs afoul as well because they don't really understand what's going on. Someone like yourself is, is, <laughs> I mean, you're talking about, you know, first of all, filling the pipeline at the bottom is something as a parent I've seen uh, is, is a scary, um, I don't want to say it's a scary thought, but it's something that concerns me a little bit. Are we bringing enough players into the game to fill the pipeline? And you're right. There's a lot. And my, I've been, I've been fortunate. My daughter's played for a couple of really good clubs and I would say do a pretty good job, you know, top to bottom, but you know, the top is important to them and, uh, they seem to keep score at the top more so than at the bottom, which is, is natural, I guess, but keeping players involved, bringing them in and keeping them motivated at the lower levels, boy, that's key. And then, and then the La Liga program, you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, you know, coaching is, is so important no matter what sport you're playing, but especially this sport with so many playing and, and, uh, you know, relatively short history here. Um, you know, again, just kudos. So, uh, you know, keep up the great work. I, I, we're going to have to bring you back and dive into some more detail here. But, but the work you're doing is is really important to the growth of the game here, 
And, uh, you know, I know people within the sport and within the organizations understand what you're doing. I don't think the average fan knows. I mean, a lot of those, those people have some, some kids at play or something and, you know, the, the relationship sort of ends with, uh, whatever league they're in. And, um, yeah, it's part of the education process and, and, and you're doing that. So, uh, I want to, I want to shift a little bit. There's so much to go over here, but I want to shift a little bit and go back in time a little, uh, you maybe, and I, I don't have a research department, Kevin, but you may be the only person who's been president and general manager of a club to win four MLS cups. Is that true? Yeah, I'm pretty, pretty confident that I have, I think I actually have more um, major championships between MLS cup or supporter shields or open cups, whatever, probably then maybe the next three guys combined. I've tried to figure that out myself. Um, but I, I, I know that the specific thing that you mentioned, no, no other single executive has won for Bruce arenas won um, as a coach, but with two different teams has won, I believe four. So you put those clubs together. That's, this is the other part of it. That's, that's very interesting to me is, is you didn't walk in the door and somebody had prepared something and you took it over. You actually, you literally built them, especially at DC United one, if you will, you built that from the ground up, uh, starting at zero share with our, uh, listeners a little bit of, of some of the things that were important to you to putting that those teams together and, and how you manage that development, that growth, and ultimately, you know, how you, uh, how you uh, in, instituted, you know, the level of, of success that you had. Yeah, you know, um, you actually mentioned something when you were talking about what, what we're doing with U.S. club soccer. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that I've always tried to preach and practice is that it, it is, it's very important to have a vision and a strategy that supports it. And then also really pay attention to the tactical approach, the day to day um, that, that fulfills that. And each, you know, they're not mutually exclusive. Each relies on the other. So we had a very clear idea from the beginning of the kind of club we wanted to be. Um, and we thought a lot about the relationship between really great sports clubs and their supporters and their communities. And that's why our, our mission statement, uh, the language changed slightly over the years, but the, the, the meaning of it was always the same, that uh, we wanted to win championships and serve the community. Um, and we were... You know, in a way, I always thought it was a great advantage that we had a blank, you know, board when we started DC United. We weren't burdened by um, a lot of specific expectations of how things needed to be done. And um, so we were able to to build the club that we wanted from the ground up. One of the, you know, we, we, had, a, we had that mission statement and then a series of what we called um, internal characteristics and external identifiers. So in other words, how were we going to behave internally on a day-to-day basis? 
and how did we want to be perceived by um, the community at large? And we had all of that printed up, and it was framed on every single desk of every employee in the organization from you know very, very early in our existence. And we talked about it all the time. I'm a really big believer in what, what I call mindfulness. Um, that, you know, if, if you're trying to accomplish something or you're trying to behave in a certain way, um, you have to really be thoughtful about that on, a, on an everyday basis. Um, you can't just kind of uh, say, yeah, this is what we're going to do, and then assume that, you know, people are going to do that. So we were very focused on those things. And, you know, we had certain real characteristics that we wanted to be part of the way our club was identified. In particular, we wanted to be authentic. And that's why, you know, if you look at the beginning of the league, um, we had a very authentic look, a traditional look, um, tr very traditional and very, um, uh, you know, kind of a, uh, a very noticeable uniform that was a little bit unusual because it was predominantly black. Uh, our name was very traditional, and our very first marketing slogan was the tradition begins. So we thought that that was really important, and everything we did, we talked about in terms of what was going to be um, the legacy of DC United in 20 or 25 or 30 years. So we tried to be mindful about those things, and I think a lot of people forget that stuff. They forget that when history is written, about something it's really just a recounting of a whole bunch of daily activities and daily decisions and so if you're not thinking about those things properly then you're not going to be remembered the way you want to be well that's that, a very that another thing another thing we talked a lot about was we're going to have an image um the, the question is is it the image that we want it to be and so we we really focused on those things. I still, to this day, believe very, very strongly in those kind of basic guiding principles. Well, I think, I think uh, again, you're exhibiting uh, some, some incredible management skills. But what a lot of people listening may not understand is all the, uh, and I'm going to be nice here, I'm going to call it experimentation that was going on with the game here in this country at that time. And you were sort of the outlier, and as I recall, as the one who was going to be, you know, true to the game, true to, uh, you know, your your mantra, true to your colors, and uh, and put a team together that played great soccer without uh, a lot of the uh, the hoopla. And that's that's what that team was known for. And thank God you got the results you did, or we might still be doing these uh, crazy ideas that they were doing. But um, you know, it takes it takes a lot of courage to to start something up from scratch. It takes a lot of vision to to understand what it is you want uh, on down the road, and a lot of things will affect that. Uh, but it also takes a lot of uh, determination and courage to fight the forces that were trying to go against you, and, and not, not in a bad way, I would say, but in, in just, it just is what it is, or was what it was uh, back in those days. And I think if uh, you wouldn't have had the success you had on the field while defining that brand and defining that style of play and defining what a coach was going to be, 
um, God, who knows where we'd be today. So, uh, you know, we, we, we all, we all owe you for that. And, uh, again, I don't think a lot of people understand it, but, um, uh, it was, uh, incredible days. That's for sure. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate you saying that. I, I always laugh and, you know, I got talked to quite a bit this spring cause it was the 25th anniversary of, uh, the, um, the first game. And so I was asked a lot of questions about that stuff. And, and I remember, you know, the, the people in the league office at the time, um, they used to, uh, I was kind of referred to all the time as the soccer guy in, in a sort of derisory way that wasn't intended as a compliment. Um, in fact, I remember at one board meeting, uh, a league executive, and it's actually a league executive who's a great guy and a very good friend of mine. But at the time, he made a comment that we should give every uh, team executive in the league a soccer test, and any of them that pass it <laughs> should be fired. And, you know, I, I just, uh, I almost went across the table. I was so angry. And I said, this is our, our product. You know, the game is our product. And the people who love it are our customers. And how can we have that kind of an attitude about it? We, we shouldn't be smarter. We shouldn't necessarily, you know, believe that we have to be smarter than the supporters. I mean, they, they know what they want. Um, we know what they want. Let's give them what they want. Why, why do we feel like we have to, you know, we have to create something that's different than than what they're telling us they want to they want to see. So it, it was a frustrating time because um, we were, you know, I had had the benefit of putting on games all over the country for the U.S. national teams with our company, Soccer USA Partners, between 90 and uh, between 1990 and the time the league launched. So we, we had a really good feel for what people wanted around the country. And um a lot of people just were, uh, there's still a problem, I think, sometimes in, in our sport, and maybe it's in any sport, where, you know, people sit in, a, in an office building somewhere, and they think they know better. Um, and there is a real desire to, you know, how can we be smarter? Well, sometimes you don't have to be smart. You just have to be, you know, wise. There's a, a saying I, I use a lot, which is that, Facts are not knowledge, and knowledge is not wisdom. And this was one of those examples where I think in a lot of cases, uh, things were being overthought. It, it really wasn't that uh, complicated. Well, in hindsight, you can say that. Uh, I know there were a lot of people that thought otherwise. And, and again, uh, thank goodness you stuck to your guns because I think it proved, it proved to a lot of people that it could be done in a uh, – you know, in, in a way that was true to the game. And, you know, I, I can still remember you're the one that always called it the beautiful game. You were the first one, first person in person, I think I ever heard say that, but you, you always referred to it as that and you maintain that. And, uh, and hence here we are today. So uh, let's fast forward to today for a second. And, and, and I don't, I'm not that interested in, uh, you know, the little tit for tats going on between the Players Association and, 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 and the league today. I mean, they're going to sort that out. It's less than 1% and some peripheral stuff. But what are the challenges over the next three, five years, Kevin, in your, in your mind that, 
you know, they need to keep focused on and keep working on to continue to grow the game. Yeah. You know, it's, um, uh, this, this, the whole coronavirus thing obviously is a big challenge for the league and, um, you know, how they handle it will, will end up having some impact on the years to come. Um, obviously, as you allude to, you know, to some extent, at least their relationship with the players union will be to some extent will be shaped by how they find a way to work together in this time to, to get back on the field. Um, I think the league's got a couple of challenges. Um, the, I, I really strongly believe that the league needs to find ways to incent teams to develop their own players. And, you know, I would say their own American players, but that, that will naturally happen. If, if they're developing players of their own through their own um, programs and being encouraged to use them on the field, I think that will be a good thing. That's part of the way that clubs really put deep, deep roots in the community um, around the world. You know, if you talk to, uh, if you go and, you know, talk to Manchester United fans and they still talk about the class of 92 you know the whole that whole group of players paul skulls and the, the neville brothers and nicky Butt, and of course david beckham who all came through their academy system at the same time um players like raul and in, in real madrid have a special place in the hearts and minds of those fans because they are from Madrid, and they um, now Raul was actually originally in the Atletico Madrid system, but then moved to Real Madrid when he was 15, and you know, and then by the time he was 17, he was playing for the first team. So those guys, they are more beloved than players that are just brought in when they're 26 years old or 27. You know, they're already accomplished professionals. Um, and I think that's that there's a lesson there that I think, um, I think MLS should, should pay some attention to. Uh, I do think that the league and the national team are somewhat intertwined in people's minds. Um, and not, you know, that's not, uh, it's not a, a perfectly straight line, but I do think that they, uh, the, the two are mutually, can be really mutually beneficial. So I, I think that the league needs to find ways to get more um, academy products on the field. They're spending a lot of money on their academies right now, and they're not, for the most part, they're not getting much of a return. Um, you know, there's a few clubs, Philadelphia in, partic in particular, has done a good job of putting those players on the field. Dallas has signed a lot of those players, but they don't necessarily always get much time with the first team. Um, and I just think they need to find, and whether that's by requiring it or, you know, coming up with some other incentives. Um, right now, most of the roster and budget rules actually encourage teams to go out and find 
young players from other countries who are already on a professional pathway. Um, and I, I personally think it would be better for the league in the long haul if they had, if they were a little more deeply rooted in the American soccer experience. Yeah, those are those, that's a ve- those are very good points and um, and very good advice and and again uh, more vision that uh, I know some people are trying. It's it's not easy developing players. There's no guaranteed formula, but boy, when it works, you're right. You gave some great examples. Uh, I was in Amsterdam when Clavert and those guys all came out through Ajax, and it was. Uh, you're right. You know, I mean, those were adopted adopted sons of the, of the city and of the country, and uh, it was it was an incredible uh, reaction to the people to know that you know they had gone into that school at 12 or 14, and now they're scoring goals for the first team. It was uh, it was. And by pretty- the way, they're back there now. Yes. Yes. <laughs> you know, so they end up back there. Um, you know, Dennis Bergkamp is uh, on the coaching staff at Ajax. I think Kleibert is as well. And even when those guys go on to play at other clubs, as they inevitably will at some point, um, they, they, the community in Amsterdam never lost their affection for those players. They always felt that they were theirs um, in a different way. Then, so Cristiano Ronaldo was remarkably successful at Real Madrid. But he'll never be beloved of their fans in the same manner that Raul is. Right. Um, so I just think that that's something that, um, and I think there's all sorts of spillover effect of that. The the connection to the community um, on an everyday basis, the, that whole journey that those players take is shared by you know dozens and dozens and dozens of people who feel that they're on the journey with them. Um, so I hope that the league figures out a way to accomplish that. It's not simple. No, it's um, it's not simple. It's not easy. And I, I don't want to draw parallels because I don't think they are the same. But, you know, you, you see it in different sports here in this country where, you know, locals, you know, they play in high school and then they play in local colleges or, or in within the state. And then all of a sudden they're, they're, they're pro players and, and people still consider them their own in the neighborhoods they came from. And you got followers and more people interested because they came from, you know, our neighborhood or they came from our state or whatever it may be. So uh, those are, those are great points. Um, look for those that are on, you're listening to inside soccer. Uh, we are blessed to have Kevin Payne, the CEO of us club soccer with us. We're going to approach the finish line here, Kevin. And I was hoping you might be able to share with our listeners I don't know, something from the past, uh, something that, you know, no one maybe would know unless they were actually there with you. But uh, I know you've had so many experiences and, and pick one out of uh, a hat here and, and, and share with our, uh, our listeners. Uh, boy. <laughs> um, you have a lot of choices. Yeah. Well, so, so one pretty funny uh, incident occurred. After the first season, um, and we were fortunate enough to win the first championship, we were invited, thanks to Densu, we were invited to play in um, a game in March, early March. Um, we, so we were going to play them very early in our preseason. They were in the middle of their season. Um, 
and they had slightly different rules. So we went there and we were having a, we were going to have the technical meeting before the game. We allowed five uh, foreign players on a roster. And I think at the time we allowed four on the field at any given time. The J League only allowed three. So Densu told us before the meeting, um, you insist on five. They're going to insist on three. We're going to talk about this for <laughs> quite a while. And then eventually the Secretary General of the JFA is going to propose a compromise at four. Um, so somebody from the league, and I won't say who, but somebody from the league came into the meeting. They weren't in the earlier meeting. They didn't understand the approach. Yep. And in the first like minute of the conversation, they said, well, you know, we want five, you want three, let's do four. And we ended up spending two and a half hours in the room trying to get through this because of the protocol and uh, the desire not to lose space. So I remember at the time, Carlos Quiroz was the manager of the other team that we were going to be playing. And he kind of waved to me and pulled me over into a corner and said, you know, why did he say that? Um, what was going to be a 30-minute meeting is now going to be a very long meeting because they can't just accede to that request. You should never have made that request. And I said, yeah, I know. But, <laughs> so we ended up, uh, the whole game almost got cratered by it. And uh, we ended up, as I said, we literally sat for two and a half hours in this room, everybody making speeches and trying to be polite. And eventually the JFA secretary general just kind of said, well, there's no other way around this. So I'll just restate it. And uh that, so sometimes some weird things happen behind the scenes, particularly when you're playing in international games. Um, and, yeah. you know, cultural differences can have a profound impact on, on the way things are supposed to go. And you just have to find a way to be patient and keep an open mind. Absolutely. And uh, you've, had, you've had that experience uh, a number of times with international matches. But, man, you, you need to understand the cultural differences and – uh, you know, one of these days I'll, I'll share some stories of, uh, some things I found very interesting in some international matches, but, uh, let me see if you, rem if you remember this and then, uh, we'll sign off here. It was two weeks after nine 11 and, uh, Tim, uh, Lightwicky and I had come down from New York and you had set up a meeting with the mayor of Washington, DC and their top advisors. And we're in a room and there are stadium plans everywhere. You've been working on this stadium. You thought you had uh, everything locked up, ready to roll. And this is back in the day. So everyone's pagers on their side start going off. And it was kind of weird. It was like there's four or five of them there. And all of a sudden, they're all looking at their belts, you know, and their pagers are going off. And they just keep going off. And all of a sudden, the mayor's like, we have to excuse ourselves. And they walked out. And somebody said, well, there's, there's a second threat on Washington, D.C., I remember looking at Tim going, let's go back to L.A. Well, what you find out yeah, years exactly. later was uh, in L.A. was actually a city that was under threat, not not Washington. But, uh, God, I'd never seen a meeting scuttled like that one. Yeah, that was <laughs> that was just one of the many, many steps along the way to finally getting a stadium in D.C. <laughs> Basically, 
anything that could go wrong in that process did. Well, and that was just another example. But you're right. I, I do remember that. Well, the fans, uh, the fans owe you about 20 years of your life that you worked on that. And, um, and thank goodness you did. And I, I, you know, I, I like the stadium they have. I like the location. I, the sight lines are incredible. Um, so, you know, none of that would have happened without your work, but Kevin, I said 30 minutes, of course we're over. I do appreciate your time. I appreciate your insight. I appreciate all you do for the game here in this country. And I'm sure everyone listening will have a new appreciation of just, uh, how much work and how many things you've been involved in. So hopefully down the road, we can get you back and we'll, uh, we'll change subjects and talk about some other things, but we do appreciate it very, very much. Thank you. Thanks, Phil. Yeah, it's always great to talk to you. Uh, you know, we had the pleasure of working together for a while. I've, I've stayed in touch and have remained friends. So thanks very much for having me on, and I, I wish you the best of luck with this project. Excellent. Thank you, Kevin. Take care. Bye-bye.